0: Chapter 8 of My Life on the Plains. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. On the morning of the twenty eighth, the train with its escort returned to the main camp on the Republican. All were proud of the conduct of these detachments of the command which had been brought into actual conflict with the Indians. The heroes of the late fights were congratulated heartily upon their good luck. While the comrades who had unavoidably remained in camp consoled themselves with the hope that the next opportunity might be theirs. The dispatches brought by Major Elliott from General Sherman directed me to continue my march as had been suggested up the North Republican, then strike northward and reach the platte again at some point west of Fort Sedgwick near Riverside Station. This programme was carried out leaving our camp on the republican we marched up the north fork of that river about sixty miles then turned due north and marched for the valley of the platte the only incident connected with this march was the painful journey under the burning july sun of sixty-five miles without a drop of water for our horses or drought animals the march was necessarily effected in one day and produced untold suffering among the poor dumb brutes Many of the dogs accompanying the command died from thirst and exhaustion. When the sun went down, we were still many miles from the Platte. The moon, which was nearly full at the time, lighted us on our weary way for some time, but even this was only an aggravation, as it enabled us from the high bluffs bordering the Platte Valley to see the river flowing beneath us, yet many miles beyond our reach taking lieutenant molin dr coates and one attendant with me and leaving the command under the temporary charge of major elliot i pushed on intending after arriving at the river to select a good camping ground as the darkness and circumstances would permit we then imagined ourselves within four or five miles of the river so did it appear to us mile after mile was traversed by our tired horses Yet we apparently arrived no nearer our journey's end. At last, at about eleven o'clock, and after having ridden a brisk rate of nearly fifteen miles, we reached the river bank. Our first act was to improve the opportunity to quench our thirst and that of our horses. Considering the lateness of the hour and the distance we had ridden since leaving the command, it was idle to expect the latter to reach the river before daylight nothing was left to us but to bivouac for the night this we did by selecting a beautiful piece of swad on the river banks for our couch after taking our saddle blankets for covering and our saddles for pillows each of us attached his horse by the halter strap to the hilt of his sabre then forced the sabre firmly into the ground both horses and riders were weary as well as hungry at first the horses grazed upon the fresh green pasture which grew luxuriantly on the river bank but fatigue more powerful than hunger soon claimed the mastery and in a few minutes our little group horses and men were wrapped in the sweetest of slumber had we known that the indians were then engaged in murdering men within a few minutes ride of where we slept and that when we awakened in the morning it would be to still find ourselves away from the command and sleep would not have been so undisturbed daylight was beginning to make its appearance in the east when our little party of slumbering troopers began to arouse themselves those unfortunate persons who have always been accustomed to the easy comforts of civilization and who have never known what real fatigue or hunger is cannot realize or appreciate the blissful luxury of a sleep which follows a day's ride in the saddle and a half a hundred miles or more being the first to awake i rose to a sitting position and took a hasty survey of our situation within a few feet of us flowed the platte river our group horses and men presented an interesting subject for a painter to my surprise i discovered that a heavy shower of rain had fallen during the night But so deep had been our slumber that even the rain had failed to disturb us each one of the party had spread his saddle blanket on the ground to serve as his couch while for covering we had called into requisition an indian rubber poncho or rubber blanket which invariably forms an important part of the plainsman's outfit the rain without awakening any of the party had aroused them sufficiently to cause each one to pull his rubber blanket over his face and thus protected he continued his repose the appearance presented by this somber-looking group of sleepers strongly reminded me of scenes during the war when after a battle the bodies of slain had been collected for burial but this was no time to indulge in idle reveries AROUSING MY COMRADES, WE SET ABOUT DISCOVERING THE CIRCUMSTANCES OF OUR SITUATION. FIRST, THE DUTIES OF A HASTY TOILET WERE ATTENDED TO. NOTHING, HOWEVER, COULD BE MORE SIMPLE. AS WE HAD slept IN OUR CLOTHES, TOP BOOTS AND ALL, WE HAD SO MUCH LESS TO ATTEND TO. THE RIVER FLOWING AT OUR FEET AFFORDED A LAVATORY WHICH, IF NOT COMPLETE IN ITS APPOINTMENTS, WAS SUFFICIENTLY GRAND IN ITS EXTENT TO SATISFY EVERY WANT it was now becoming sufficiently light to enable us to see indistinctly for almost a mile in either direction yet our eyes failed to reveal to us any evidence of the presence of the command here was fresh cause for anxiety not only as to our own situation but as to the whereabouts of the troops saddling up our horses each person acting on his own groom we waited to the clearing away of the morning mist to see the main body we had not long to wait the light was soon sufficient to enable us to scan the country with our field glasses in all directions much to our joy we discovered the bivouac of troops about three miles down the river a brisk gallop soon placed us where we desired to be and a few words explained how in the darkness the column had failed to follow us but instead had headed for the river at a point below us A portion not reaching the bank until near morning breakfast disposed of the next question was to ascertain our exact location and distance from the nearest telegraph station fortunately riverside station was near our camp and from there we ascertained that we were then about fifty miles west of fort sedgwick the party obtaining this information also learned that the indians had attacked the nearest stage station west of camp the preceding evening and killed three men the station was only a few minutes ride from the point of the river bank where myself and comrades had passed the night in such a fancied security believing that general sherman must have sent latter instructions for me to fort sedgwick than those last received from him i sent a telegraph to the officer in command at the fort making inquiry to that effect to my surprise i received a dispatch saying that the day after the departure of major elliot and his detachment from fort sedgwick with dispatches of which mention had been previously made a second detachment of equal strength viz ten troopers of the second united states cavalry under the command of lieutenant kidder and guided by a famous sioux chief named red deed had left fort sedgwick with the important dispatches for me from general sherman and that lieutenant kidder had been directed to proceed to my camp near the forks of the republican and failing to find me there he was to follow rapidly on my trail until he should overtake my command i immediately telegraphed to fort sedgwick that nothing had been seen or heard of lieutenant kidder's detachment and requested a copy of the dispatches borne by him to be sent to me by telegraph this was done the instructions of general sherman were for me to march my command as was at first contemplated, across the country from the Platte to the Smoky Hill River, striking the latter at Fort Wallace. Owing to the low state of my supplies, I determined to send out for Fort Wallace at daylight next morning. Great anxiety prevailed throughout the command concerning Lieutenant Kidder and his party. True, he had precisely the same number of men that composed Major Elliot's detachment when the latter went upon like a mission. But the circumstances which would govern in the one case had changed when applied to the other. Major Elliot, an officer of experience and good judgment, had fixed the strength of his escort and performed the journey before it was positively known that the Indians in the section had entered upon the war path. Had the attack on the commands of Hamilton, Robbins, and Cook been made prior to Elliot's departure, the latter would have taken not less than fifty troopers as escort. After an informal exchange of opinions between the officers of my command regarding the whereabouts of Lieutenant Kidder and party, we endeavored to satisfy ourselves with the following explanation. Using the capital letter Y for illustration, let us locate Fort Sedgwick, from which post Lieutenant Kidder was sent with dispatches at the upper right point of the letter. THE CAMP OF MY COMMAND AT THE FORKS OF THE REPUBLICAN WOULD BE AT THE JUNCTION OF THE THREE BRANCHES OF THE LETTER. FORT WALLACE RELATIVELY WOULD BE AT THE LOWER TERMINATION AND THE POINT ON THE Platte AT WHICH MY COMMAND WAS LOCATED THE MORNING REFERRED TO BE AT THE UPPER TERMINATION OF THE LEFT BRANCH OF THE LETTER. Robinson COOK, IN GOING WITH THE TRAIN TO WALLACE FOR SUPPLIES, HAD PASSED AND RETURNED OVER THE LOWER BRANCH. After their return and that of Major Elliot and his party, my entire command resumed the march for the plat. We moved for two or three miles out on the heavy wagon trail of Robbins and Cook, then suddenly changed our direction to the right. It was supposed to be that Kidder and his party arrived at our deserted camp at the Forks of the Republican about nightfall, but finding us gone had determined to avail themselves of the moonlight night and overtake us before we should break camp the next morning. Riding rapidly in the dim light of the evening, they had failed to observe the point at which we had diverged from the plainer trail of Robinson Cook, and instead of following our trail had continued on the former in the direction of Fort Wallace. Such seemed to be a plausible, if not the only solution capable of being given. Anxiety for the fate of Kidder and his party was one of the reasons impelling me to set out promptly on my return. From our camp at the forks of the Republican to Fort Wallace was about 80 miles, but 80 miles of the most dangerous country infested by Indians. Remembering the terrible contest in which the command of Robbins and Cook had been engaged on this very route within a few days, and knowing that the Indians would be in all probability maintain a strict watch over the trail to surprise any small party which might venture over it, I felt in the highest degree of solicitous for the safety of Lt. Kidder and party. Even if he succeeded in reaching Fort Wallace unmolested, there was the reason to apprehend that, impressed with the importance of delivering his dispatches promptly, he would set out on his return at once and endeavor to find my command." let us leave him and his detachment for a brief interval and return to events which were more immediately connected with my command and which bear a somewhat tragic as well as personal interest in a previous chapter reference has been made to the state of dissatisfaction which had made its appearance among the enlisted men the state of feeling had been principally superinduced by inferior and insufficient rations a fault for which no one connected with the troops in the field was responsible but which was chargeable to persons far removed from the theater of our movements persons connected with the supply detachments of the army added to this internal source of disquiet we were then on the main line of overland travel to some of our most valuable and lately discovered mining regions the opportunity to obtain marvelous wages as miners and the prospect of amassing sudden wealth proved a temptation sufficiently strong to make many of the men forget their sworn obligations to their government and their duties as soldiers forgetting for the moment that the command to which they belonged was actually engaged in war and was in a country infested with armed bodies of the enemy and that the legal penalty of desertion under such circumstances was death many of the men formed a combination to desert their colors and escape to the mines the first intimation received by any person in authority of the existence of this plot was on the morning fixed for our departure from the Platte. orders had been issued the previous evening for the command to march at daylight upwards of forty men were reported as having deserted during the night There was no time to send parties in pursuit or the capture and return of a portion of them might have been effected the command marched southward at daylight at noon having marched fifteen miles we halted to rest and graze the horses for one hour the men believed that the halt was made for the remainder of the day and here a plan was perfected among the disaffected by which upwards of one-third of the effective strength of the command was to seize their horses and arms during the night and escape to the mountains. Had the conspirators succeeded in putting this plan into execution, it would have been difficult to say how serious the consequences might be, or whether enough true men would remain to render the march to Fort Wallace practicable. Fortunately, it was decided to continue the march some fifteen miles further before night the necessary orders were given and everything was being repacked for the march when attention was called to thirteen soldiers who were then to be seen rapidly leaving the camp in the direction from which we had marched seven of these were mounted and were moving off at a rapid gallop the remaining six were dismounted not having been so fortunate as their fellows in procuring horses the entire party were still within sound of the bugle but no orders by bugle note or otherwise served to check or diminish their flight the boldness of this attempt at desertion took everyone by surprise such an occurrence of enlisted men deserting in broad daylight and under the immediate eyes of their officers had never been heard of with the exception of the horses of the guard and a few belonging to the officers all others were still grazing and unsaddled. The officer of the guard was directed to mount his command promptly and if possible overtake the deserters. At the same time those of the officers whose horses were in readiness were also directed to join in pursuit and leave no effort untried to prevent the escape of a single malcontent. In giving each party sent in pursuit instructions there was no limited fixed to the measures Where they were authorized to adopt in executing their orders this unfortunately was an emergency which involved the safety of the entire command and required treatment of the most summary character it was found impossible to overtake that portion of the party which was mounted as it was afterwards learned that they had selected seventh of the fleetest horses in the command those on foot when discovering themselves pursued increased their speed but a chance of a couple of miles brought the pursuers within hailing distance. Major Elliot, the senior officer participating in the pursuit, called out to the deserters to halt and surrender. This command was several times repeated, but without effect. Finally seeing the hopelessness of the further flight, the deserters came back to bay, and Major Elliot's renewed demand to throw down their arms and surrender the ringleader drew up his carbine to fire at his pursuers this was a signal for the latter to open fire which they did successfully bringing down three of the deserters although two of them were worse frightened than hurt rejoining the command with their six captive deserters the pursuing party reported their inability to overtake those who had deserted on horseback the march was resumed and continued until near nightfall by which time we had placed thirty miles between us and our last camp on the platte. While on the march, during the day, a trusty sergeant, one who had served as a soldier long and faithfully, imparted the first information which could be relied upon as to the plot which had been formed by the malcontents to desert in a body. The following night had been selected as a time for making the attempt the best horses and arms in the command were to be seized and taken away i believe that the summary action adopted during the day would intimidate any who might still be contemplating desertion and was confident that another day's march would place us so far in hostile and dangerous country that the risk of encountering war parties of indians would in itself serve to deter any but large numbers from attempting to make their way back to the settlements. To bridge the following night in safety was the next problem. While there was undoubtedly a large portion of the men who could be fully relied upon to remain true to their obligations, and to render any support to their officers which might be demanded, yet the great difficulty at this time, owing to the sudden deployment of the plot, was to determine who could be trusted this difficulty was solved by placing every officer in command on guard during the entire night the men were assembled as usual for roll call at tattoo and then notified that every man must be in his tent at the signal taps which would be sounded half an hour later that their company officers fully armed would walk the company streets during the entire night any man appearing outside the limits of his tent between the hours of taps and reveille would do so at the risk of being fired upon after being once hailed the night passed without disturbance and the daylight found us in the saddle and pursuing our line of march toward fort wallace it is proper to here record the fact that from that date onward desertion from the command during the continuance of the expedition was never attempted it may become necessary in order to perfect the record borrowing a term from the war department to refer in a subsequent chapter to certain personnel and official events which resulted partially from the foregoing occurrences let us now turn our attention to lieutenant kidder and his detachment the third night after leaving the Platte, my command encamped in the vicinity of our former camp near the forks of the republican so far nothing had been learned which would enable us to form any conclusion regarding the route taken by Kidder. Comstock the guide was frequently appealed to for an opinion which from his great experience on the plains might give us some encouragement regarding Kidder's safety. But he was too cautious and careful a man, both in word and deed, to excite hopes which his reasoning could not justify when thus appealed to he would usually give an ominous shake of the head and avoid a direct answer on the evening just referred to the officers in comstock were grouped near headquarters discussing the subject which was then uppermost in the mind of everyone in camp comstock had been quietly listening to the various theories and surmises advanced by different members of the group but was finally pressed to state his ideas as to kidder's chances of escaping harm well gentlemen emphasizing the last syllable as was his manner before man can form any idea as to how this thing is likely to end there are several things he ought to be acquainted with for instance now no man need tell me any parts about injuns if i know anything it's injuns i know just how they'll do anything and when they'll take to do it but that don't settle the question, and i tell you why. If I'd known this young lieutenant, I mean Lieutenant Kidder, if I'd known what for sort of man he is, I could tell you mighty near to a certainty all you want to know. For you see, injun hunting and injun fighting is a trade all by itself, and it's like any other business. A man has to know what he's about, or if he don't, he can't make a living at it. I have lots of confidence in the fighting sense of Redbeard, the Sioux Chief, who is guiding the lieutenant and his men. And if that injun can have his own way, there is a fair show for his guiding him through, all right. But as I said before, there lays the difficulty. If this lieutenant, the kind of man who is willing to take advice, and if he does come from an Indian... My experience with you army folk has been, alas, been the youngsters among ye think you know the most, and this is particularly true if they have just come from West Point. If some of them young fellows knowed half as much as they believe they do, you couldn't tell them nothing. As to real book learning, why, well, I suppose they got it all, but, but the fact of the matter is, they couldn't tell the difference twixt the trail of a war party, and one made by a hunting party to save their necks. Half of them, when they first come here, can't tell a squaw from a buck, just because both ride straddle. But they soon learn. But that's not neither here nor there. I told that the lieutenant were taken about as a newcomer, and that this is his first scout. If that be the case, it puts a mighty uncertain look on the whole thing. And to excuse me, gentlemen... He'll be mighty lucky if he gets through all right. Tomorrow we'll strike the Wallace trail, and I can mighty soon tell if he has gone that way. But little encouragement was to be derived from these expressions. The morrow would undoubtedly enable us, as Comstock had predicted, to determine whether or not the lieutenant and his party had missed our trail and taken that leading to Fort Wallace. At daylight our column could have been seen stretching out in the direction of the wallace trail a march of a few miles brought us to the point of intersection comstock and the delawares had galloped in advance and were about concluding a thorough examination of the various tracks to be seen in the trail when the head of the column overtook them well what do you find comstock was my first inquiry they gone towards fort wallace sure was his reply and in support of his opinion, he added, The trail shows that about twelve American horses shot all round and past his walk, going in the direction of the fort, and when they went by this point they were all right because the horses were moving along easy and there were no pony tracks behind them. As wouldn't be the case if the Indians had got an eye on them. He then remarked, as if in parentheses, it would be astonishing if that lieutenant and his layouts gets into the fort without a scrimmage. He may, but if he does, it'll be a scratch if ever there was one, or I'll lose my confidence in the Indians. The opinion expressed by Comstock as to the chances of Lieutenant Kidder and the party making their way to the fort across eighty miles of danger unmolested was in the concurrent opinion of all officers, and now that they had discovered their trail, the interest and anxiety became immeasurably increased as to their fate. The latter could not remain in doubt much longer, as two days marching would take us to the fort. Alas, we were to solve the mystery without waiting so long. Pursuing our way along the plain, heavy trail made by Robinson and Cook, and directing Comstock and the Delawares to watch closely, that we did not lose that of Kidder and his party, we patiently but hopefully awaited further developments. How many miles we had thus passed over without incident worthy of mention, I do not now recall. The sun was high in the heavens, showing that our day's march was about half completed, when those of us who were riding at the head of the column discovered a strange looking object lying directly in our path and more than a mile distance it was too large for a human being yet in color and appearance at that distance resembled no animal frequenting the plains of which any of us were familiar eager to determine its character a dozen or more of our party including comstock and some of the delawares galloped in front before riding the full distance the question was determined the object seen was a body of a white horse a closer examination showed that it had been shot within the past few days with the brand u s proved that it was a government animal major elliot then remembered that while at fort sedgwick he had seen one company of cavalry mounted on white horses These and other circumstances went far to convince us that this was one of the horses belonging to Lieutenant Kidder's party. In fact, there was no room to doubt that this was the case. Almost the unanimous opinion of the command was that there had been a contest with the Indians, and this only the first evidence we should have proving it. When the column reached the point where the slain horse lay, a halt was ordered, To enable Comstock and the Indian scouts to thoroughly examine the surrounding grounds to discover if possible any additional evidence such as empty cartridge shells arrows or articles of Indian equipment showing that a fight had taken place all the horse equipment saddle bridle and so on had been carried away but whether by friend or foe could not then be determined While the preponderance of circumstance favored the belief that the horse had been killed by Indians, there was still room to hope that he had been killed by Kidder's party, and the equipment taken away by them, for it frequently happens on a march that a horse will suddenly take ill, and be unable for the time being to proceed further. In such a case, rather than abandoning him alive, with a prospect of his recovering and falling into the hands of the Indians to be employed against us, orders are given to kill him, and this might be true of accounting for the one referred to. The scouts being unable to throw any additional light upon the question, we continued our march, closely observing the ground as we passed along. Comstock noted that instead of the trail showing that Kidder's party was moving in a regular order, as when it was first discovered, There were but two or three tracks to be seen in the beaten trail, the rest being found on the grass on the other side. We had marched two miles, perhaps from the point where the body of the slain horse had been discovered, when we came upon a second, this one like the first having been killed by a bullet, and all of his equipment taken away. Comstock's quick eyes were not long in detecting pony tracks in the vicinity, and we had no longer any but the one frightful solution to offer kidder and his party had been discovered by the indians probably the same powerful and bloodthirsty band which had been resisted so gallantly by the men under robinson cook and against such overwhelming odds the issue could not be doubtful we were then moving over a high and level plateau unbroken either by ravines or divides and just such a locality as would be usually chosen by the indians for attacking a party of the strength of kidders the indians could here ride unobstructed and encircle their victims with a continuous line of armed and painted warriors while the beleaguered party from the even character of the surface of the plain would be unable to find any break or depression from behind which they might find a successful defense It was probably this relative condition of affairs which had induced Kidder and his doomed comrades to endeavor to push on, in the hope of finding ground favorable to their making a stand against their barbarous foes. The main trail no longer showed the footprints of Kidder's party, but instead Comstock discovered the tracks of shod horses on the grass, with here and there numerous tracks of ponies, all by their appearance proving that both horses and ponies had been moving at full speed. Kidder's party must have trusted their lives temporarily to the speed of their horses, a dangerous venture when contending with Indians. However, this fearful race for life must have been most gallantly contested, because we continued our march several miles further without discovering any evidence of the savages having gained any advantage. How painfully! Almost despairingly exciting must have been this ride for life. A mere handful of brave men struggling to escape the bloody clutches of the hundreds of red visage demons, who, mounted on their well-trained war ponies, were straining every nerve and muscle to wreak their hands in the life blood of their victims. It was not death alone that threatened this little band. They were not riding simply to preserve life they rode and doubtless prayed as they rode that they might escape the savage tortures the worse than death which threatened them would that their prayers have been granted we began leaving the high plateau and to descend into a valley through which at the distance of nearly two miles meandered a small prairie stream known as beaver creek the valley near the banks of the stream was covered with a dense growth of tall wild grass intermingled with clumps of osiers. at the point where the trail crossed the stream we hoped to obtain more definite information regarding kidder's party and their pursuers but we were not required to wait so long when within a mile of the stream i observed several large buzzards floating lazily in circles through the air and but a short distance to the left of our trail this of itself might not have attracted my attention seriously but for the rank stench which pervaded the atmosphere reminding one of those horrible sensations experienced upon the battlefield when passing among the decaying bodies of the dead as if impelled by one thought comstock the delawares and half a dozen officers detached themselves from the column and separating into squads of one or two instituted a search for the cause of our horrible suspicions. After riding in all directions through the rushes and willows, and went about to relinquish the search as fruitless, one of the Delawares uttered a shout which attracted the attention of the entire command. At the same time he was seen to leap from his horse and assume a stooping posture, as if critically examining some object of interest hastening in common with many others of the party to his side a sight met our gaze which even at this remote day makes my very blood curdle lying in irregular order and within a very limited circle were the mangled bodies of poor kidder and his party yet so brutally hacked and disfigured as to be beyond recognition save as human beings Every individual of the party had been scalped and his skull broken, the latter done by some weapon, probably a tomahawk, except the Sioux chief Red Bede, whose scalp had simply been removed from his head and then thrown down by his side. This Comstock informed us was in accordance with a custom which prohibits an Indian from bearing off the scalp of one of its own tribe, this circumstance then told us who the perpetrators of this deed were. They could be none other than the Sioux, led in all probability by Pawnee Killer. Red Bead, being less disfigured and mutilated than the others, was the only individual capable of being recognized. Even the clothes of all the party had been carried away. Some of the bodies were lying in beds of ashes with partly burned fragments of wood near them showing that the savages had put some of them to death by a terrible tortures of fire the sinews of the arms and legs had been cut away the nose of every man had been hacked off and the features otherwise defaced so that it would have been scarcely possible even for a relative to recognize a single one of the unfortunate victims we could not even distinguish the officer from his men each body was pierced by from twenty to fifty arrows, and the arrows were found as the savage demons had left them bristling in the bodies. While the details of the fearful struggle will probably never be known, telling how long or gallantly these ill-fated little band contended for their lives, yet the surrounding circumstances of ground, empty cartridge shells, and a distance from where the attack began satisfied us that Kidder and his men fought as only brave men fight. When the watchword is victory or death. As the officer, his men, and his no less faithful Indian guide had shared their final dangers together, and had met the same dreadful fate at the hands of the same merciless foe, it was but fitting that their remains should be consigned to one common grave. This was accordingly done. A single trench was dug near the spot where they had rendered up their lives upon the altar of duty. Silently, mournfully, their comrades of a brother regiment consigned their mangled remains to Mother Earth, there to rest undisturbed, as we supposed, until the great day of final review. But this was not to be so. While the closest scrutiny on our part had been insufficient to enable us, to detect the slightest evidence which would aid us or others in identifying the body of Lieutenant Kidder or any of his men. It will be seen hereafter how the marks of a mother's thoughtful affection were to be the means of identifying the remains of her murdered son, even though months had elapsed after his untimely death. End of chapter 8